Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean Tobias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome Jeff Maggiancalda, a board member at Silicon Valley Bank and the CEO of Coursera, a global online learning platform that offers anyone anywhere access to online courses and degrees from leading universities and companies. You know, Coursera has really been on a roll. Revenues are up 64% year over year. And they also just received their B Corp certification this year, which we can talk about a little bit. Welcome, Jeff. Good to see you. Great to be here, Dean. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Um, big fan of your company. Um, so your revenues are up 64% year over year. Uh, that's that's good, you know, um, 20 to 21. A lot of companies were way up. Uh, some weren't, though. So what's, uh, what's your story behind that? Well, I think a lot of it, frankly, has to do with um, the business, but also the secular trends. Uh, what's happening is the world's moving faster and faster. Everybody yeah. needs to learn new skills to become uh, more relevant in the workplace and do their jobs. The pandemic comes through, shuts down work, shuts down schools. In, in April 2020, 1.6 billion students had their schools closed around the world. 90% of every student in the world. Whoa, it's a big number. I never, I haven't heard that one. Wow. Yeah. 1.6. So, and and they, they went online and then many of them went to Coursera. So we saw 30 million new learners join in just 2020 uh, because their schools were closed, offices were closed, and people had to keep learning. Yeah, my uh, significant other is a, a vice principal, I think they call it. And uh, the things that, you know, K through 12, I know that's not your shtick, but the things that they had to go through and respond to, uh, they're in Colorado, they were pretty aggressive. They didn't close that much. Whereas in Chicago, where I spend most of my time, different story. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe before we get into content where you're going and strategy, that maybe back up the bus and tell me a little bit about, or us, about your channel. So, you know, higher ed, corporates, DTC, like is the first one like higher ed, like, you know, me, Kellogg, Northwestern, is that like a supplier? And then the other ones are like channels or how do you think about your business? Yeah, you got it. Um, so it started, Coursera started in 2012 by two Stanford professors, Andrew Ng and Daphne Kohler. And it wasn't a business at first. They just put a couple of their computer science courses online. Know, they, were, they, were, they were rebels. Yeah, yeah. machine learning, of course. And when they put it out there, people from all over the world came and took these courses. And so they started the company, John Doerr and, and Scott Sandell from NEA backed the company in the Series A round. And, um, and it was originally all B2C. So it was just, and it was all free. It was just sort of, hey, come in yep. and, and take some great courses. A that's bunch how a lot of people, that's how a lot of people remember you. You're kind of like the Craigslist of education. Yeah, so. no, that's right. I mean, that's, and a, it, good, it, that's it, a good it, starting it, story. I like it. But you know, a lot, a lot of business schools, I, I uh, went to Stanford before there were a lot of platform business models out there. I graduated in 96. But um, a lot of people really think about it, like, how do you jumpstart a platform business, a multi-sided platform? Well, one right, of the ways right. to do it is to get some famous people with some really hot content who can attract a lot of people on one side, which was you know hundreds of thousands of individual learners. And then the universities came, the, the, the top universities like Northwestern and Stanford and Duke and Yale, they started publishing and then you had a nice two-sided platform there where the, the publishers, became, uh, the universities were the publishers mm -hmm. and they published for this global audience. And they came, the global audience came because they could get access to these open courses from top universities. So that happened for you know, a number of years. And then about six years ago, we launched Coursera for Business, which is the first institutional channel. So we have a direct sales force, they sell to businesses. We now have 2000 companies around the world 
who are licensing the suppliers, the publishers of content. That's the Northwesterns of the world. They build, we have over 5,000 courses from top universities and industry partners. So some of the universities are suppliers, but now we have also offered Coursera for campus. And this is an institutional version of our product where any academic institution, not just the elite schools, but any school in, in any country can license these published courses um, almost like courseware, like a digital textbook. And, 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 and now we have thousands of academic institutions who are purchasing Coursera for campus. And then the third is Coursera for government. So we have basically three institutional channels, one for businesses, one for campuses, and one for right. governments. And what they're all looking for is really high quality online courses that they can get and, and use for their constituents. Or the .gov thing could be just a massive company all on its own. We, we could probably spin that out. And, anyway, um, <laughs> getting ahead of myself, the you said something really interesting there. It's like, hey, we take all these cool courses uh, that maybe, you know, Dean and others teach uh, yeah. and offer them at community colleges. So are you messing with the higher ed business model here? As fragile well, as it I, is right now, it's, 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 it's under it's, a little pressure already. The higher ed business model is definitely changing, and we are yeah. definitely one of the um, uh, agents who are changing it. But at some, to some degree, I think of it as higher education reinventing itself because the vast majority of the courses on Coursera are from universities. Um, you know, it was started by university professors, and the courses are mostly from universities. And so some academic institutions are actually collaborating by licensing content from other academic institutions. Not so different from textbooks, except right. once you move to a digital mechanism, you, know, you, can, you can have a different kind of learning experience. And of course, you can you can teach at a speed and scale that's much more difficult to do with traditional. Yeah, it's kind of like old media going to new media. I like the I like the textbook analogy. It probably makes it feel comfortable because they are not good at reinventing themselves. So I think that's up to you and others. Yeah. Like they're adopting technology, they're paying a lot of money for it, you know, things like Canvas and Zoom and blah, 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 but really core at the core of the curriculum level. It's, uh, it's like the um, the family jewels, as you, as you would say. Yep. So that's that's um, fascinating. We can Let's go into the company side in a minute. But before that, many people probably don't know what B Corp certification is. I think it's a big deal you got that this year. Um, has, has that changed your outlook, your you know, what, what you're doing, how you're approaching the, this global business? It, it really hasn't. Um, the, when Andrew and Daphne created Coursera, it was a for-profit. And like I said, it was funded by NEA and Kleiner. Um, but they but they called it Coursera.org, the website. And when I right. got here four years ago, I was kind of like, what's with the <laughs> .org? I mean, this is a, this is a for-profit company, right? right? And the founder said, yeah, but we really want to make clear that our original intent and mission is still the same, which is to help people get access to high-quality education. And so we've also always been very mission driven. We, we, we offer and, and our university partners uh, really support this, but we offer a lot of courses for free with financial aid to anybody who uh, who needs financial aid. We offer oh, wow. Coursera for refugees, which is uh, free programs for, for refugees. And so what happened was um, I did some looking into the B Corp status because I just thought it would be nice to be legally recognized as having an obligation, a legal obligation right. to serve this mission. And so we went through the process in 2020. Um, by the way, state of Delaware has changed their laws. They make it much more clear for fiduciaries and board members. Mm -hmm. There's a question like, well, how do we balance the needs of society and the needs of shareholders? And is someone going to sue us because we got that balance wrong? Uh, Delaware has done a nice job clearing that up. So it's much more easy now for boards to embrace that decision. Our board did. 
uh, we announced it in February. And what it really means is that we have rechartered in the state of Delaware as a public benefit corporation. And then we went to a nonprofit called B Labs, and they do an assessment and a certification called a B Corp certification. So we are both a public benefit corporation chartered in the state of Delaware, and we also have B Corp certification from B Lab. Without getting too geeky, might be too late. Um, what what is that? Is that more of a stateside kind of focus, or is it global? It's it's stateside. It yeah, might okay. be recognized globally, but yeah. uh, it's something that the that's a bigger deal in the U.S. And you're already operating that way, so that's why it was so right. easy for you to get. I know m many companies that would never be able to get that certification. Does it change? Is there any any bennies with this tax benefits or anything? No, there's there's no tax benefits. There's a little bit of governance overhead in the sense that you now have an obligation to 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 affirmatively attest that you are not just serving shareholder interests. There's yeah. a uh, impact statement that you have to make with um, both the state of Delaware and with with B Labs, and you get assessed every two years. But you know, like you said, our business is so fundamentally about education and opportunity. We give away so many and subsidize so many courses that we just thought, hey, we're already doing this. Uh, we might as well embrace this uh, as, a, as a more formal matter and hopefully too, lead the way for other companies to say, hey, you can be a multi-billion dollar public for-profit company. And if you do the right thing, uh, balance the interests of more than just shareholders yep. and, and still be a successful business as well as serving the world. So, I mean, I, I happen to believe and the board believes that you know, businesses are institutions who have a responsibility beyond shareholders. When I grew up, I, I was I was at Stanford as an undergrad in economics and was really a big believer in kind of the Milton Friedman, you know, just your, your, your job is to serve shareholders and let them do the, the charity and everything. And it worked I, at the time. Yeah, that's that's the way that's what you're doing in the late 80s. Um, but but now I, I really do feel like uh, among institutions who are, uh, you know, generally being heavily challenged by social media and social movements, institutions that have longevity, that that can have um, sort of, sort of uh, coordinated initiatives to affect society are valuable. And so not, ha not having businesses do uh, a job for more than just shareholders, I think would be a, a real mistake. And so we want businesses to follow us. Of all the companies that have been on the program, CEOs, uh, uh, Bracken Darnell, the CEO of Logitech, he probably would probably get this certification. There's, there's just many others that I just think it's too soon for them, but they want to pretend they are, but you know, and they want to, you know, do DEI. They want to do all these things, but they've got a lot of, a lot of work to do. I think from an ed tech point of view, getting a little too geeky here, they, the top 20 ed tech companies, if you look at them, they've just been booming in K through 12 and higher ed during the pandemic coming out of it. It's just slingshotted them and many of them should be on the same track, so I congratulate you on that. Hey, you were the CEO of Financial Engines. Uh, I was a big fan of that. I think you exited for over, I don't know, three billion or something, Who, who's counting, right? Um, that was a very different experience from Coursera. What was this cultural transition like for you? You don't seem like an academic. Well, you know what's interesting is Financial <laughs> Engines was also started was by- That was a compliment, by the way. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, the the so, academic so, part. Yeah. Well, you know, so I've been working with with academics for a long time. When I was an undergrad, um, this was in 1989. I wow. worked at a litigation consulting firm, and the expert witnesses were were Stanford and MIT and and other University of Chicago professors. I I was an analyst who helped prepare them for expert testimony. Sure. I graduated um, and went back to the business school, and when I at Stanford, and when I finished uh, there, I became the CEO of of uh, Financial Engines and the first employee. 
So I worked with Bill Sharp, you know, the famous Bill Sharp and the Sharp Ratio and the Nobel wow. Prize capital asset pricing model. And Joe Grunfest, who was a former SEC commissioner. This was, my first, this was my first job, basically. And so I, did, I didn't know anything. Whoa. I never hired anybody. I'd never fired anybody. And I was there for 18 years. And, you know, what we did is we, we democratized independent investment advice for 401k participants. Yeah. And so it was, a, it was a long effort. I learned a ton. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it turned out well. Yeah, you're a pioneer in fintech now, now ed tech. So, so let's switch to your other constituents, you know, besides government, academia, business. So I do a lot of exec ed. Exec ed seems to be booming. I think you've launched the Leadership Academy. What's your approach to, I think you said 2,000 companies globally you work with? Yeah, yeah. Well, that seems, uh, it seems low to the audience, but those are huge companies would be my guess. Yeah, there, there are a lot of big ones. Um, and we, we, you know, our approach is basically realizing that almost every business in the world is trying to deal with digital transformation. You're like, well, you know, what does digital transformation mean? Yep. It means, you know, so much of the business model is is going digital. And, and digital means you're, you're kind of in order. Your customers are now found digitally. You know, they don't walk into your store so much. You have to go find them online. The customer experience is much more digital. So, you know, they, sometimes they handle your goods, but oftentimes they're actually interacting with your digital surfaces. So your mobile phone and your, uh, and, and your website and things. Um, your supply chains are often digital. And basically every single job in a business now is using data to make decisions and to influence and to communicate. And so, and, and of course, using lots of digital tools. So companies are reinventing entire business oh, and then moving to the cloud. And now with AI, yep. a lot of stuff is going digital and many companies are struggling to figure out how do I teach tens of thousands of people in my company who are employees who went to school at a time when there wasn't AI and a lot of cloud computing. You know, how, how do we teach well, them? Well, let's face it. The baby boomers were still playing with punch cards in college, for gosh sakes. That's totally true. People don't know what I just said. Um, what's, <laughs> a, what's a punch card, Dean? It, so you exactly hit it on the head. It's like um, what, what um, you know, with Revive, we work with all the retailers in the world. And what I tell them is when I'm advising the retailers, like, hey, this digital transformation, you have now felt it in 2021, 20, now going into 22. And I said, it goes from the boardroom to the dressing room in the store. You know, it's like everything has been digitally converted or it hasn't, and you're way behind already. They're like, yeah, we, we've been way behind for 10 years. I'm like, now's the time to not be behind anymore. It's like the expectation levels, even from a boomer audience, consumers, you know, as you said, yeah. that customer experience expectation, sometimes it's not all digital, but the expectation is very, it's a very high bar. And if you're not all integrated and digitally savvy and big data, so that, that seems like a massive opportunity bucket for you guys from an educational point of view. It is, and you know, you mentioned retail, that's definitely one of our largest verticals oh. That, that hires us. And one of the reasons is the, like you said, the consumer is the customer and consumers have a, a digital expectation that's being set by Apple and Google and Amazon. I mean, these are really, really top yep. performing digital companies and that's what consumers expect from their bank or that's what consumers expect from any other retailer. The other thing about retail is they have a lot of data. I mean, retail sitting on asset. all this yes. data. And so if that is an asset that you're not really exploiting and Google is and Amazon is, you're going to fall further and further behind. And so it really is sort of a do or die. E either you figure out how to better harness the data and create better experiences, or as a retail company, you're going to even see a bigger gap between the digitally savvy competitors and your and your own business performance. Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of cross um, 
I almost said cross-contamination, but you know, just cross-promoting uh, and cross-recruiting. Um, so, for instance, COO of Starbucks now running um, Walgreens or Walgreens, Walgreens Boots Alliance, who was getting digitally savvy, but a long way to go. But a lot of these retailers are just... It's just, you know, every time I'll hold up my phone, those of you that are not on YouTube, but it's like every time they, you have to go to another app for another store for another, um, you know, loyalty program. It's just like, it's just, everyone's done the same thing. And now most consumers have just way too many apps on their, their phone. And the next generation of digital seems to be different than that. What, what are your thoughts about just, you know, personalization and you know, we say it's all about customer experience, but if you if I look at your phone, you're, there's 30 apps there that you're just irritated with half of them, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, when it comes to learning, it's one of those experiences, you know, what Amazon's doing is very difficult, like, like shipping stuff around the world and trying to do it within a window of 24 hours or less. Yeah, that's um, brilliant. What we do is, we, you know, we sh we stream digital experiences. That's a, that's a lot easier, actually. And so that the... Um, yeah. The opportunity to personalize digital experiences as opposed to physical experiences is much higher. And so the ability for us to help people figure out what should you be learning? If your job is X, Y, Z in this industry, in this region, here are the kinds of skills that people in your job are learning. Here are the tools that people in your job are using. We could teach you how to do that. Here are the credentials that people in your job are getting that helps them get to the next job. So. Helping people discover the right stuff is clearly something that's ripe for personalization. Once people start learning, um, what we have is really pretty cool. We call it in-course coach. But we're, we have 82 million learners on Coursera now from all around the world. And some courses have millions of course enrollments. We can watch each student going through the experience and how they're doing on the quizzes. What are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? And we are predicting which questions will they get right and wrong on the upcoming tests. We actually create personalized study guides that say, hey, there's a test coming up. Students who perform like you up to this point, half of them missed the test. Of the half that actually passed the test, this is what they studied. And then you get a personal study guide based on your performance that helps you review the material that is relevant for the upcoming quiz to increase the probability that, that you actually pass it. And so there are things like that that are, that are really pretty cool in, in the way that you can change these learning experiences using AI. Wow, that is a great example of, of, of the power of, of data and, and personalization and zeroing in because education just fails there. How, how how far down are you going? Like higher ed really starts with high school students. Like what what's your you said 82 million. What's what's the mix age groups? There are some there are some teenagers on it, but most of the, the average age is about 30, 33. We find that people typically are coming to Coursera individuals yep. when they're trying to get ahead in their career. A lot of people want to switch careers, so we have a, a, a growing catalog of entry-level professional certificates. And these ones don't usually come from universities. This comes from Google and Microsoft and IBM and others. Yes. And that's really for people who don't have a college degree. I mean, it's, they're really designed because, because there's a lot of jobs like um, IT support, uh, social media marketing, cybersecurity, project management, UX design. There's a number of job opportunities that are digital entry-level jobs that don't require a college degree and you can learn the skills online. So, so when we offer those kinds of programs, you're often getting people who don't have a college degree. Sometimes they're younger people, sometimes in high school, juniors, seniors, but mostly it's people in their late 20s, early 30s, really trying to drive the advancement of their careers and trying to learn some things that are gonna help them move faster in their careers. 
Yeah, that's what I figured. We, we used to call it chunky learning and uh, and getting more badges. And that's why I said, you know, is, is higher ed's business model, you know, under siege? And I think in some categories it is, but if they have an exec ed program, it's like, you know, how do you democratize this a little bit more and mm -hmm. allow people that um, might not be in your cloud of, uh, you know, graduate students, PhDs, even undergrads, and just let them get these things. So that, that seems like one of your biggest opportunities. Is that what the yeah. uh, Leadership Academy is about too? Yeah, so what we're hearing on on leadership, and this gets to the, the, the fundamental reason why there's a big opportunity for Coursera. I mean, there are many enablers, which is like cloud computing, all these other things. But right. fundamentally, it's about change. When I went to college, the world was not changing so quickly. And so what you learned in college could probably, you know, meet your meet the needs of a business for quite some period of time, maybe decades. Now things are changing so fast that what you learn in college is, is part of the equation, but you need to keep up with emerging uh, principles and techniques. So a lot of that, the core of what we sell to businesses is data science, because that's, you know, that's the hot thing that's the center of almost every transformation effort. We do a lot on technology, especially right. cloud computing and machine learning in the cloud. But business skills are also changing. I mean, what's happening is the, the pace of business is changing rapidly. Teams are becoming more globally diverse. Now they're working remotely. There are practices, uh, business practices, which are much less hierarchical that have to do with feedback loops and agility. So how do you manage a team to be getting feedback and be able to pivot more quickly? How do you set OKRs so that everybody knows kind of what you're focused on in the next 90 days? And when you need to pivot, you can pivot more quickly. These are business practices that are relatively new and are more urgent than ever. So this Leadership Academy is really something that we're offering to businesses, which is one of the enablers uh, of, of sort of change and acceleration, which is, yeah, you can put everything in the cloud, but if your organization doesn't respond quickly to the threats and opportunities in front of it, you're you're not going to be as adaptive as you need to be. Yeah, I talk a lot about that in exec ed, especially to board members. It's like agility, you know, they get that, though they're not very agile. They're, they're still, <laughs> they're board members. Um, but the whole, um, uh, digital fluency, just really being, so we went through a cybersecurity teaching phase, we went through a SOX, you know, financial phase. And now to me, it's like how you demystify technology. You don't need to know how it works. You need to know what is it going to do to impact your business. Do you get into stuff like that or is it more one-on-one -on -one understanding the technology? No, it, it, it's, it, it's everything from AI for everyone. So this is a course by Andrew Ng that says, you know, this is what AI is. This yep. is what it can do. This is what companies who are at the leading edge of AI look like. Yeah, and that. you're it's very somebody, good. Yep. It's kind of like, what do you need to be thinking about as, as a board member or as a CEO or whatever in order to figure out what kinds of, in what ways can AI advance your business model? Because AI is not going to have the same impact on every business model. But, you know, different business models are different. So a lot of it is really thinking about, to your point, not like exactly how does the technology work, but what are the capabilities and possibilities that could be brought to your business model if you really embraced AI in, in, in a smart way? So there's some of the more technical introduction to, to domains like blockchain, cyber, AI. And then there's also things like managing remote teams. We have a great course by GitLab, who's been a, a virtual company for a long time. And so how do you manage remote teams? There are courses from University of Washington on public speaking. Uh, the top uh, course in business, the top skill in business is a strategy and operations. We have a lot on project management. So it's, it's really the business schools like yours, Dean, who are, who are putting courses on how to run organizations effectively out yeah. into the broader community, you know, not not just the live face-to-face, -face, uh, but also asynchronous and on a more distributed basis. 
Got it. So you mentioned uh, one course about managing remote teams. A lot of people have learned how to do that over the last year, and they've learned the wrong lessons. <laughs> right. uh, some of them have learned the right lessons. So let's pivot to that for our remaining time. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you go. I'll just let you kind of go freewheeling here for a little bit. Let's just talk about the future of work, going back to the office. Um, a lot of companies are now looking at 22 and repositioning and saying, hey, wherever you landed, stay there. That's fine. You know, you went to Orlando. Sorry, but salary reduction. But uh, so I think there's, you know, a structural thing going back to the office. Some companies, it's voluntary. Some it's like there's going to be some push from some of these companies. Um, what's your, I guess two things. What are you doing and what are your perspectives about as a teaching company? Yeah, that great. What should companies be doing? Yeah, advice. well, I, I'll, I'll briefly go through how we decided to do what we're doing. And, you know, I think this is a little bit of a game theory. You can't just say, what are you, as a given company, it's interesting. I hear a lot of CEOs say, well, we're doing this. And I'm like, <laughs> have you thought about what we're doing? Because what you're doing should probably be influenced by what other people are doing. Because Did you remember the agility lesson I gave you an hour ago? No, no, exactly. Dean. No, there's, there's an interesting, there's an interesting, uh, and I think a little bit old fashioned idea that, Hey, since I'm the CEO, I'm going to tell all my employees what they're going to do. Oh, it's like, I'm, guess what? I am seeing that over and over now. They call me and I'm like, dude, that's not very nice. <laughs> so what we do is, smart. So it was, we're Mountain View. Our headquarters have, yeah. have been Mountain View. And yeah. on March 6th, before we went to, you know, shut down, because the virus was starting to, to, to spread and we were like, we're going to have to shut down. Have everybody yeah, you guys, you guys move quickly. We move, we move fast, and I, I wouldn't give us all the credit because you know Slack and Salesforce uh, and Twitter, a lot of the Bay Area companies were moving very fast. San Francisco was shutting down pretty quickly. By the way, a lot of this was we could afford to do that. We're digital companies. Everybody already was using Zoom, and already, I mean, we were already doing a lot of these things. But I basically went to our head of HR. We were still in the in the lunchroom at the time. And I said, Rich, and this guy's amazing, Rich Jackwood. He's he's done Packetier, he's done Gigamon, he's done he's done a lot of. He was at eBay. Uh, he's done a lot of HR for many decades, so he's an experienced HR exec. I said, Rich, I don't think we can ever ask people to come back. And he's like, Well, tell me more. I said, Well, once people go work from home, which everyone's going to do, they're going to get used to life without a commute. And sure, we can say when the pandemic is somehow managed at some point, come back. But I'll bet you Slack's not going to, someone's not going to say that. Someone, whether that's Slack or whether that's friggin' Dropbox or, you know, there's a lot of competition for talent in Silicon Valley. So someone's going to say you don't have to come back. And having and lived there, they, there's a lot that, of traffic. <laughs> yeah, they're they're going to pick off all of our best people. They won't yep. pick off everybody. They'll pick off our data scientists. They'll pick off our lead architects. They're going to pick up our best people. So we can't do that. And so rather than getting, being on the defense, let's play offense. Let's be the people that on day one say to our employees, you're never going to have to come back and then start building an organization that anticipates a future where people can work from anywhere. And then let's start picking off everybody else's top talent when they try to get people to come back. Then, then in the summer, right, with, with Black Lives Matter and a lot of the, um, I'm going to say awakening, but a lot of the dramatic rise in conversation and awareness and recognition of the disparities of talent and, and, and economics, uh, and a big emphasis on trying to build better representation at all levels of the company, whether it's the board level or whether that's entry level, or whether that's executive level, realizing that if you can draw on talent from anywhere in the world, any city in the United States, suddenly you have access to a much more diverse talent pool. You can get the very best people no matter where they live. So then we we're like, we doubled down on it. 
he said we could dramatically change the composition of our of our workforce if we don't force people to come back. And so we've embraced it and it's going great so far. I'm, there's a lot we have to learn, um, but we're having a, a really good time of it. And our employees are pretty happy because whether the yeah. Delta virus, uh, the variant is coming out or not, they know what the deal is. And they have pretty much since we shut down, we said, you're not gonna have to come back if you don't want. But of course, we're not gonna shut the offices forever. You'll We'll have offices for people if they wanna come to them. Yeah, voluntary. Um, so and it, it has done wonders for diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and just agility and diversity of thought, not just yep. so much you know about the normal diversity that we talk about. So what are the top things you'd recommend CEOs be doing now moving into 22? Well, I mean, I, I, honestly, I think that this how to manage a, a distributed remote team, e even if it's only going to be um, half of your people two days a week. And I think yeah, that's an exactly. yeah, that, that's what I meant. Yeah. Tips on that specifically. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we have found, and, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm not the I'm not the expert on this, but um, one thing like, you look like one though, it's fine. Uh, thanks. The, the, so one of the things I have always thought, and I've always said, is is for a CEO, um, to so I've always kind of wanted to be a product manager. That was always my favorite thing, and and I think well, a product manager. What's neat about that is their their product is kind of their thing, and there's a way that they iterate. There's a process, you know, lean product, the way that you figure out what customers need, et cetera. I think that a CEO is to a business model what a product manager is to their product. Like the business model is my product. That's what I have to really figure out. And I treat it like a product. I iterate, I have feedback loops. I get feedback from employees. I get feedback from customers. I get feedback from partners. And as I think, and I look at, and I also analyze, just like you look at competitive analysis of other products, I look at competitive analysis of other business models. I'm like, well, how are they doing it? What are their channels like? What are their acquisition costs like? So, yep. so I do think that it's going to be different for different CEOs, but CEOs should really be thinking that there is a new world where anyone can learn online. So skill availability, the ability to develop skills is huge. You should be looking for people who are just natural, curious learners and performers. And then I think the idea that you can hire people from anywhere expands your talent pool to a global talent pool. And then the way that you run your business, in my opinion, I've always looked at it as a system. Business as a system, it's not just a bunch of components, it's components who are related to each other in a certain way where bottlenecks emerge and there are certain dependencies. And there's a cadence to how the system runs. So I think about system, which is the relationship of components and cadence, which is the synchronization of the way that things work. If you're gonna be a remote team, you have to be much more explicit about your OKRs, your objectives and key results. You know, what are you trying to achieve? Much more explicit about your roles and responsibilities and your functional structure much more explicit about your core processes and when and how things happen, much more explicit about your people processes. How do we recruit? How do we onboard? How do we train? How do we evaluate? How do we develop people? So I think what it is is far more explicit management practices are required in a world where you cannot rely on serendipity and charisma and personality that you would have in the workplace to have a growing and thriving uh, workforce. Perfect. Yeah, move from reaction and move to strategy. It's like, I love your little story about working with the HR yeah. head at, at such an early stage about being proactive and competitive, quite frankly. Right. Jeff, I wanna thank you for joining us. It's been a great talk. We could go on forever just on this last topic and maybe we'll do a future of work one in the future with some, some folks. Um, this is Dean DeBias with the Reboot Chronicles. We've been listening to Jeff, Maggie, and Calda, who's the CEO of Coursera. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you soon. Thanks for attending.